0: Welcome, it is 1107 Dave Roland coming up. Several Supreme Court cases that will affect you, and you'll want to hear about them. They're uh, they're about 15, 20 minutes away. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're going to talk about a four-hour workday. In fact, Brian, a four-hour maybe we should just go home now. We're done. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I was yeah. kind of getting tired after, you know, I, I, how long's has it been? Oh, man, two, two hours, I can't. Well, you started earlier than... Nine o'clock. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> just a little? I started, I was at it uh, before five o'clock this morning. Well, I, that's I'm, not enough. We need I'm to way get overd- more out of you. Oh, nay, nay, Perlene, I'm way overdue. <laughs> I should be, I walk out of the studio right now. Leave this in your hands. Okay. Uh, but here's what they're concluding. Uh, they, they, a four-hour workday office workers hit their productivity peak by 10.22 a.m., and they slump by 1.27 in the afternoon. Poll finds 58% struggle to get through a day without feeling the highs and lows of productivity levels. Spending too much time in front of the computer, 27%. Being interrupted by colleagues in the office, 24%. Not taking enough breaks. Um, well, uh, what do you say you and I would we'll just uh, we'll take a break? We'll go out in the green room and have a cup of coffee. That sounds good. I usually go to the relaxation room. Uh, I yeah, I never go in s- there with, you when don't? you're in there. No, <laughs> yeah, you'll have to look that up, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, anyway, we we're talking about global warming and this nonsense about CO2, and I really I am incensed at the stupidity of all this banning light bulbs and uh, getting rid of battery, uh, getting rid of in- the internal combustion engine and charging people more money for a car that doesn't get the mileage the government wants and all of the solar panel nonsense and windmills. More people die every year from the cold than the heat. So in addition to all the junk science about global warming, they're literally making it, you know, trying. Their goal would be to kill more people. Uh, droughts are not increasing uh, d- droughts are declining global percent of the earth in drought 1982 to 2012 and you if you put it on a graph it goes from roughly 25% down to about 20% literally getting better all the time Uh, strong tornadoes are increasing. Some people believe that's the case, but according to NOAA, the most violent tornadoes are in a 70 year decline. Uh, The latest data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reveal a strong and persistent decline in the number of violent F3 to F5 tornadoes. Or in uh, climate gobbledygook, the uh, UNIPC Uh, AR6 reports that observational trends in tornadoes, hail, and lightning associated with severe convective storms are not robustly detected due to insufficient coverage of the long-term observations. I mean, you're ruining the economy for everybody because you've been convinced that junk science is real ...and convinced by socialists. Uh, Some people think that islands in the Pacific are shrinking in size. The water is coming up and swallowing the islands. Coral islands in the Pacific Ocean have been found to actually be growing... ...not shrinking or sinking. Um, The coral reef islands uh, can accrete vertically in response to sea level rise... Uh, it, it just isn't true. The lies these people have been telling you, liberals, about global warming, are simply not true. I, I I don't know what it takes to get people to to wake up to this. Oh well, you know I was planning a summer vacation to Pensacola. Oh, don't go there. That, don't that don't go. That is on hold. Yeah. yeah, because uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You're talking like global warming isn't happening, but it is. Oh, prove it. Well, the, the oceans are boiling. Who says?
1: We're going to bring these emissions down. And, and just to put the science in a, a slightly different context, people are familiar with that thin blue line that the uh, astronauts bring back in their pictures from space. That's the, that's the part of the atmosphere that has oxygen, the troposphere, uh, and it's only five to seven kilometers thick. That's what we're using as an open sewer. If you could drive a car straight up in the air at interstate highway speeds, you'd get to the top of that blue line in five minutes. And all the greenhouse gas pollution would be below you. We're still putting 162 million tons into it every single day. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate climate refugees predicted to reach 1 billion in this century look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees what about a billion we would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world we have to act so in answer to your question i would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had and we need have had and we need to make some changes Wow! Yeah, uh, yeah. Now, you know what? Stay are you away convinced from the coast. now? Yeah. yeah, stay away from the coast.
0: Yeah, um, I, I had no idea that it was that bad. I, you know, I, I lived uh, in, on the Outer Banks of North Carolina for for a couple of years, and I don't remember seeing the ocean actually boiling. You just haven't been paying attention. Hmm. You were, you know, paying attention to the guys in the Speedos while you should have been looking well, at the ocean. Well, trying to avoid you. That's that's what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. You want to make sure you don't uh, uh, you don't uh, get in front of Brian in a Speedo. Uh, let me... Uh, it, 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 it's just... It's it's irritating to me because it's, it's destroying the economy. And it's making it tough for the poor people to, to keep their homes at a comfortable temperature. Or to travel... Uh and and, and uh, it's just I mean you can't even buy a light bulb that they don't have their damn fingers in it and it's all junk science. CO2 is good for the environment. You want leafy green trees and plants to grow CO2 is it? And it's been at much higher levels in the past. We need we need perhaps to get our local climate czar to call in. Uh let me go to the phones though. Kim is on the line.
1: Kim, welcome. Uh, how are you? I'm good, Gary. How are you? I've got one question. Yeah. If the oceans are rising, why did the Obamas just build a multi million dollar home on the on in Hawaii? On yeah the they it, they're all doing that. They're all doing you know, that. It a bunch of hypocrites. It's a
0: load of horse manure. It really is. Kim, thanks for yep. the call, buddy. Appreciate it. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Yeah, Tony Lupo. We should do. We should do a program dealing with global warming. We should try to find someone who you know believes it, teaches it in school, and uh, some other experts, and have a debate. We ought to exchange information and data. Maybe we should do that uh, sometime in the next week or two. All right. We're up against the clock. Uh, Dave Roland is coming on board with us in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Gary Nolan Show, and it's the Zimmer Radio Network. And we're looking at uh, 1119. Uh, Dave Roland is with us, uh, mofreedom.org. Free- Mo uh, and we're going to bring you on here in just a second, Dave. But I was just talking about global warming, and Chuck is on the line. Uh, he wants to make a comment on that now uh, and we'll do that before we wrap up. Chuck, welcome.
1: Well let's see. He's disappointed in atmospheric rivers, rain bombs and droughts. So which where's his happy median? I just call it the weather or the atmosphere adjusting itself and compensating for it. Yeah. Now, rocket science.
0: Yeah, you know, Brian Hansen and I have been trying to find out from Global Warming Advocates what year was the right temperature found? You know, what exactly. are we shooting for? Was it 1963, 1972? Well, when was the temperature okay? <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> All right. Chuck, thank you for the call. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. All right, Dave Rowland is with us, mofreedom.org. Uh, Yesterday, the Freedom Center was back in court.
2: What was going on, Dave? Well, Gary, this is uh, the latest step in our seemingly unending battle against the Cole County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. Listeners may remember that uh, several years ago, eight years ago to be precise, uh, our client Aaron Mallon submitted a records request to the Cole County Prosecuting Attorney's Office and... um, The response he got was, I believe every record in my office is off limits. That's what former Cole County Prosecutor Mark Richardson said. He said, I'm not gonna look for any records because I think everything in my office is off limits. He was wrong. And importantly, he knew he was wrong. This is a guy who had taught courses uh, Two public officials on how to properly respond to Sunshine Law requests. He knew better. And in 2017, the Cole County Circuit Court agreed. He knew better, purposeful violation. Uh, they awarded our client what at the time was the largest civil penalty in state history for a Sunshine Law violation. And they issued a very clear order that says, all right, the prosecuting attorney's office has to search for and produce all of the records that are responsive to Mr. Mallon's request. Seems like a pretty clear cut victory, right? Yeah. Not so much. Oh. So so we go up we go up to the Court of Appeals, they appeal, and we win at the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals specifies, they send it back down and they say, Okay, you've got to enforce this judgment, and they they even italicized the phrase they said, you've got to search for and produce all of the responsive records. So after that, the prosecuting attorney gets a new attorney to represent them. And this new attorney hems and haws for months after the case gets back to the trial court. Uh, they don't produce anything at all for about four months. And so and fine we kept on ramping up the pressure. We were like, hey, the court told you, you've got to find these records and produce them to us. You've got to do this. Uh, and if you don't do it, we're going to seek a motion for civil contempt. They didn't do it. We filed the motion for civil contempt. And the attorney was able to persuade the court, well, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can. Don't hold us in contempt. We'll get this done. We're doing the best we can court says, okay, I'm not going to hold you in contempt. Um, but then the opposing attorney filed the, or he drafted this judgment where he was kind of sneakily trying to get rid of the entire case. And the judge just signed it. Um, I mean, didn't change anything, just signed exactly what the other attorney wrote. So we appealed that and the appellate court kicked it back down to the trial court again. And so for the last two years, we have continued to insist you've got to produce these records. And their response is, we decided, number one, we're not required to search or produce anything if we're talking about paper records or microfilm. They think they only have to search electronic records, which there's absolutely nothing to base that on, um, Aaron didn't limit his request to electronic records. The court didn't say you've got to produce all the electronically stored records. It just said produce the records. They've acknowledged they've got six to 8,000 cases worth of paper and microfilm records that could have responsive documents in them. They just refuse to search for them because they want Aaron to pay for it. Now keep in mind, the court didn't say Produce these records if Aaron Mallon agrees to pay for it, if he's got the funds to pay for it. They just said, your job is to produce the records. Well, they didn't do it. We tried to get the Cole County Court to uh, enforce this judgment. They decided they weren't going to do it. They said, yo, we, we think that they've done enough. Uh, even though we acknowledge they haven't searched all these records, we think they've done enough, and so we had to take it up to the Court of Appeals. So that's where we are, Gary. Round three, Freedom Center versus the Cole County Prosecuting Attorney's Office in the Court of Appeals. And we just filed our brief, our, our opening brief yesterday, um, and i got to tell you, I, I feel pretty good about it. Now, Gary, I also have to say I feel pretty good about most of the written arguments that we file Um I probably wouldn't be filing them if I didn't feel good about them. But this one, I feel especially good about. So we'll see what they have to say in response probably in about 30 days.
0: Can Um, I ask what Mr. Malin is actually looking for? What is the topic?
2: He wants communications between the prosecuting attorney's office and the Mustang Drug Task Force. Um, So Mustang is one of these multi-jurisdictional task forces, um, you know, that used to operate in obscurity. Uh, Thanks to Mr. Malin's lawsuits, we filed a half dozen lawsuits on his behalf, and we have now established that there's no more obscurity for these task forces. They are subject to transparency and accountability. They have to turn over public records when they're asked for them. But Aaron... Um, asked for communications between Mustang and the prosecuting attorney's office. That's what they've been trying to hide for eight years now. That's what but why? they what is, what is do the not benefit? to produce. What is the benefit to the prosecutor's office in hiding this? That is an extremely good question, Gary, and we don't know. And part of the problem is, you know, when when they refuse even to search for the records, we don't know how many records they might be holding back. We clearly can't know what's actually in them um, so I have no idea what their actual incentives are it could be they've just decided that it's more trouble than they feel like it's worth to actually go and search these. By the way, uh, the former prosecutor, Mark Richardson we deposed him uh, with alongside our friends at the ACLU of Missouri. We worked together on this case at the outset um, we deposed Mr. Richardson and he said, you know, if a court orders me to go through and search these paper records by hand, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do it willingly. And that and then of course, the court said, "Okay, we are now commanding you, we're ordering you to conduct this search," and they still don't want to do it years later. Um, it's it's just a baffling situation. I don't know is, why is this, the, the uh, is go ahead. That, I'm trying to figure
0: out it and I guess we'll not know until the uh, re, the papers are, are finally turned over. But it's either whose appendage is bigger. Uh, you're not going to tell me what to do, or it's the financial uh, aspect of this is just overwhelming. I'm not paying somebody tax dollars to do this, or it's we did something we shouldn't have done, and we're we're going to try and do our best to keep it hidden.
2: Yeah, those seems those seem to be the options. You know, it is possible that they are really just concerned about the financial aspect. That's possible, um, but the problem is they should have raised that six years ago they didn't and so now they're going to have to i believe they're going to have to do this search one way or another it's just a question of whether they do it now or whether they do it later after having paid not only their own attorney uh scads of money to fight this case to the bitter end but they'll also end up in all likelihood paying us scads of money for forcing us to litigate this for so many years um if we end up prevailing uh, it, it will be a very substantial amount of attorney's fees um and so i just i don't see any actual financial upside to fighting this especially when i believe their case is as weak as it is
0: only time will tell, but I'm looking forward to hearing the end of this. I really am. I, it, this is just irritating. All right. Uh, the Supreme Court has several cases in front of them, uh, including rejecting a Missouri challenge to a tax cut rule in the COVID aid bill. Uh, they're waiting. Uh, the courts uh, uh, got to decide or hear a case challenging state law empowering government to seize. The entire value of a house. Somebody didn't pay the real estate rent to the county. Uh, the county sees the property, s- sells the property, uh, and then keeps all of the profit, if if, if, if I've got this right. Uh, instead That's of just right. giving the balance back to the to the homeowner, they just kept it. That's all coming up in the next half hour on the Gary Nolan Show with Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It's 1135. It's Think Tank Thursday. It's Dave Roland in the hot seat. It is uh, mofreedom.org on the World Wide Web. Supreme Court decides to hear a case challenging state law empowering government to seize the entire value of a home to pay a much smaller property tax debt. Uh, That is just that's just highway robbery. That's just theft. Why do they think they're it, entitled it really to that money? Is.
2: You know, Gary, we get up in arms about civil asset forfeiture, and rightly so, uh, which, of course, allows the government to just seize cash um, for for no good reason without charging anyone with doing wrong. This is arguably worse. So it's called home equity theft. The the case that gives rise to this um Involves a 93-year-old woman who was living in a condo. Um, the crime rates rose around her. She felt like she had to get out of the condo, but then she was having trouble making the payments on this condo. So she fell behind in her taxes, and ultimately she owed about $15,000. So the county comes in, and they seize the condo, and they sell it. Now, remember, she owed $15,000. They sell it for $40,000. Now, what's the common sense thing to do here? You give the the person who owed the money the $25,000 that they did not owe, that you have now recouped. But a funny thing happened. The city or the county said, no, we're we're just going to keep. This extra twenty five thousand dollars, even though it wasn't owed to us, like we we did we didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. The property owner didn't owe this money; she hadn't done anything wrong that warranted this twenty five thousand dollar gift. This, the county just decided they're going to keep it. Yeah, if she didn't want to lose, is, if she
0: didn't want to lose that equity, she should have paid her damn taxes.
2: <laughs> so Minnesota is one of about a dozen states statewide that allow this. And the case goes up in front of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, our our old favorites that include the state of Missouri. And the Eighth Circuit says nothing to see here. They say she might have had a claim if she had continued to own the property But the penalty for not paying the taxes was not $15,000. The penalty was losing the property. So she has now suffered the penalty of losing the property, and she no longer has any right to complain if the government makes a profit by selling the property and keeping the excess beyond what she had originally owed in property taxes. Uh, I'm not going to use the name of the judge, Gary, but we have occasionally talked about one particular judge on the eighth circuit who seems never to have met a government action that he thinks is unconstitutional. That's the judge who wrote this opinion. So (laughs) this, uh, this little old lady with the assistance of our friends at Pacific Legal Foundation, and you've heard me sing their praises before, um, ask the Supreme Court to take the case, and the Supreme Court agrees. This is the third case uh, from Pacific Legal Foundation that the Supreme Court is hearing this year. You know, if you want to talk about organizations that are making an impact in conservative or libertarian public interest law, Pacific Legal is doing a fantastic job. I am still, of course, partial to the Institute for Justice, where Jennifer and I got our start, but Pacific Legal is doing incredible work. The fact that the Supreme Court decided to take this up um, makes me very optimistic that we're going to get a good result. This is an impeccable set of facts, and um, it is exactly why public interest Law exists and works the way it does. You cannot get a more sympathetic figure than a 93 year old widow who's had her property stolen, who's had $25,000 uh, worth of value stripped from her. And uh, I, I think we're going to get a good result on this. The court's actually going to be looking at two constitutional issues. One is uh, whether this constitutes a taking of property. Under the Fifth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment allows certain takings if just compensation is provided to the owner that's losing the property. But they're also going to be looking at this from the Eighth Amendment angle. The Eighth Amendment prohibits excessive fines. And the Institute for Justice just won a case a couple of years ago, um, an important Eighth Amendment case saying that the government had imposed an excessive fine. So my best guess at this point is... The Supreme Court may decide this on the excessive fines ground rather than on the Fifth Amendment taking ground. But one way or another, I think we're about to see, at best, a dramatic reduction in government's ability to engage in home equity theft um, and potentially a, an outright constitutional barrier to home equity theft, uh, which would be fantastic. So be good time. news on the property rights front.
0: All right, let me uh, grab a phone call here. Steve is uh, on the line. Steve, good morning. Good morning.
2: I had a question related
1: to the case against the Cole County prosecutors. And what I'm wondering in my non-legal background or anything is, can either or both of those county prosecutors be held personally liable for a failure to basically search for the records? And basically, I'm thinking that since the Court of Appeals has told them you have to do this, that now they're willfully violating? Uh,
2: That's a wonderful question. The answer is, in theory, yes. In practice, no. The Sunshine Law specifically allows for penalties to be levied against the members of a public governmental body who are responsible for a purposeful violation. Um, I've never seen it used. Uh, We're actually trying that in one of our cases that we've got over in Western Missouri. Um, A city attorney essentially lied about the documents that the city um, had available and refused to produce them. We then caught her in the lie. And so we have specifically asked the court in that case to hold her personally accountable. But in practice, it just doesn't happen. Um, In practice, almost always you see the penalties being assessed against the government entity, and therefore it's paid by the taxpayers. That's one change I'd love to see in the Sunshine Law. I would love to see a change so that if there's a purposeful violation, they have to identify who is responsible, and that person has to bear at least a percentage of the penalty that's imposed. I I think it would be difficult to sell politically to have them bear the full financial burden, although that'd be great, too. But but if they even had to pay 10 percent of the financial penalty, all of a sudden these government officials have actual skin in the game. They're no longer playing with other people's money. Um, They have to consider self-preservation. And that's the element that is missing in so many of the decisions that get made when it comes to, um government rule breakers people who violate the law who violate the constitution they do so because they know that they're practically immune from any personal consequences um if we allow there to be personal consequences i think it's reasonable to expect that you would have fewer violations in the first place but that's just me okay steve
1: yes i think i agree with you dave and i wish that would be put into all sorts of laws on all levels of government (laughs)
2: Agreed. Agreed. You're a brother and a gentleman. All right. Thank you.
0: Bye. Thank you, Steve. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. All right. Listen, I don't want to get interrupted in the middle of the next uh, story, but it is um, the Supreme Court uh, waiting game uh, for the first opinion. Uh, Apparently, it's setting a record. Uh, We want to get to that in just a few with Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. It's Think Tank Thursday, and Dave Roland is with us, MoFreedom.org. Uh, and we got a uh, couple more stories. We're going to try and squeeze them all in in the uh, closing uh, 10 or 15, 10 or 12 minutes or whatever is left. Dave, welcome back. Uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court? Why are they so slow?
2: You know, it's a wonderful question, Gary. No one knows. Um, there have been weird things going on at the Supreme Court for the last several years. Um, if you look 100 years ago. The Supreme Court would routinely take more than 120 cases in a given year. Um, it was a very productive court. Now, sometimes that was not a good thing, but um, at least they were doing things, right? Yeah. And over the last few years, they have taken fewer and fewer cases each year. Last year, I believe the final count was 57, which was the lowest number of cases they've considered in in living memory, Um, but something else has happened this year. Not only has the court taken a low number of cases, they haven't issued any opinions. So ordinarily, um, they issue at least one opinion by the end of November. The term starts in October. The first Monday in October is when they start hearing cases. And almost every year, uh, they issue at least one opinion in November. But What we're talking about now is it's been nearly four months since they started the term, and they haven't handed down anything. We're getting in the area of almost doubling uh, the previous record for the length of time for the Supreme Court to hand down its first opinion of the term. I think the previous record was 64 days from the beginning of the term. We're over 100 now. Could this be an Supreme anomaly? Court.
0: Could this be an anomaly because
2: they're trying to figure out who leaked? You know, that could be part of it. I I don't tend to think so, but possibly, um for listeners who who don't recall, last year there was a a, a thunderous um uh event in that somebody behind the Supreme Court's walls leaked a a, a draft opinion in the abortion case. It was not entirely unprecedented, but, but pretty unusual, um, especially for a case that with that profound of an impact. Um, and, uh, so maybe they're spending so much time trying to figure out where that leak had happened that it's delaying the process. I don't think so, though. Um, some of the speculation has been that the Supreme Court has been taking, uh, an unusual number of what they call blockbuster cases, cases that seem poised to make a really big splash um, from a constitutional perspective. And those cases can be more contentious, especially when you have um, the kind of an ideological divide on the court that you currently have. So usually those cases will take longer to decide because um, each side wants to get their arguments Distilled as perfectly as they can, and also we've talked about occasionally, Gary, how they they tend to want to push the most important, the most impactful decisions until the very last possible day that they can release it. So basically, they they toss it like a, a keg of dynamite and then get out of town for the summer. <laughs> um, you know, and and you can't do that when some of these cases have been heard in October. Um, you you pretty much need to start handing those cases down before we get to June. But, but thus far they haven't been doing that. And so, um, you know, it may be that they're actually legitimately still trying to hammer out these opinions. It may be that they've just decided to sit on some of them for a while longer, uh, which the court claims it does not do. The court claims that it, it is not strategic in the dates that it releases opinions. They say, they just release them whenever they're ready. A lot of people are skeptical about that. Um, But who knows? Maybe next week, maybe next week, we'll get our first Supreme Court opinion of the term. Fingers crossed.
0: Well, in the 1930s, uh, the Supreme Court was busy rendering decisions all over the place with Roosevelt in the White House. Uh, I can't imagine. And they were pretty, uh, I mean, they had a a huge. In the the early
2: 30s, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It's when they got to the late 30s that it became a problem.
0: Yeah, but what I'm saying is that some of those decisions were pretty impactful, uh, and it oh, yeah, didn't yeah. slow them down then. All right, let's move right. on, because we don't have a lot of time, and we still got a couple of stories here to cover. Uh, tell me about the Missouri challenge to the tax cut rule in the COVID aid bill.
2: Yeah, this this was one of Eric Schmidt's um, pet projects while he was attorney general. Um, the federal government passed this huge COVID aid bill. It's going to distribute Trillions of manufactured dollars, I guess, across the entire country, um, but they added this caveat that says that you a state that receives these funds cannot use um, the funds to justify a tax cut, and Missouri was not the only state that challenged this but but it kind of led the charge, and they argued. You don't get to impose, the federal government doesn't get to impose those kinds of conditions on the states, Um, you know. And there was a case uh, back, oh, probably about a decade ago, a really good Tenth Amendment case where uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said you can't condition um, the distribution of federal aid on a state conforming its behavior to what the federal government wants. In other words, you can't use this uh, coercive kind of carrot hanging it out there to force the states to do what you want them to do. Um, Honestly, Gary, though, I'm not sure that this particular case fits that mold because the the previous case um, dealt with Medicaid funds, and basically what the Supreme Court said is, The states knew what bargain they were making when they signed up for the Medicaid stuff, and the government later tried to change the bargain, and that was what was the problem. With this, the government was clear up front if you accept these funds you cannot use them for this purpose so it's not quite as coercive it requires the states to make a choice do they accept the funds or not but um they haven't already accepted the funds before this new condition was imposed so uh it was kind of a a slap for eric schmidt's lawsuit to fail in the eighth circuit and now that the supreme court has refused to take the case um, it looks like that's probably going to be the end of the issue. The Eighth Circuit decision is going to stand. There are different ways that it might get raised again in the future, but I'm not sure that it will. Uh, so I think that this this particular case is probably done.
0: Well, there's also um, uh, financial shifts that the state can make that would ultimately allow them to take the money and uh, still somewhere down the road cut taxes. I, I'm sure that they can uh, cost shift. right. Yeah, to make that happen. Uh, before I run out of time, uh, Postal Service can punish a uh, Sabbath observing letter carrier?
2: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. It's it's brought by our friends at First Liberty, um, and the Supreme Court just agreed to take this case. Postal Carrier didn't want to work on Sundays. The Postal Service says, well, we need you to work on Sundays. He got himself reassigned to an office that did not do Sunday deliveries, and then they changed their policy so that they did Sunday deliveries again. He didn't want to do Sundays, and so he quit his job, and he's claiming that it was because they did not provide a religious accommodation. Um, And I am pro-religious liberty, Gary, but the way this has been teed up by the attorneys, again, these are friends of mine, is they're calling it religious discrimination, and frankly, I'm not sure that it is. Um, but the Supreme Court has agreed to review this. This is not a constitutional case. This is interpreting um, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. And, and so they're going to have to decide, is this impermissible to uh, require someone to quit because they want to take a Sabbath?
0: Well, if, the, uh, if that was the rule when he, uh, he took the job... Uh, then I would say he has
2: no leg to stand on. Well, you know, I, that, that's what the court's going to decide. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that one. All right.
0: Dave Roland, mofreedom.org, slash donate, because you never know when something's going to happen and you're going to need his services, and he'll provide them under those circumstances for free. Dave, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day, Carpe Diem. Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.